I want to encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. This morning, our focus will be on verses 60 through 71. John, chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. I am very thankful to share with you our oldest daughter, Ellen, made it in safely from China this past Wednesday night. We were able to pick her up around 11.30 at the airport. She is doing well, still suffering from uh, jet lag and pregnancy combined. So a little bit weary, but, but doing well. Continue to pray for her husband, Gabe. He'll be traveling in this Thursday. He is still in China teaching, uh, but hopefully uh, the time will pass quickly and he will be here Thursday. We had another good week with Emma, uh, just continuing to move forward little, little at a time. So continue to keep praying. I direct your attention to John 6, beginning with verse 60, as this discourse Jesus has given about the bread of life comes to its conclusion. And the conclusion of it calls for a response. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Would you bow with me in prayer again? Lord, by your grace, we have recognized this morning that you are sovereign. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. We have sought you, Lord, asking that you would open. Open not just our eyes and minds to know facts, but open our hearts. That we would love you and know you and worship you and live for you. And we have been reminded that through Jesus' death upon the cross and His resurrection, we find life. That even though we were sinners, you sent Him to die on the cross for our sin. Now, Father, your revelation calls for a response from us. So, Lord, I pray that you would incline our hearts to obey and to love you. Work within us this morning that we would understand that we cannot be neutral about Jesus. Grant this, I pray, through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And the church said, 
Amen. It's still amazing to me that with all of the technology we have to aid in communication, that communication can still be a very difficult thing. To speak with clarity and to understand clearly is still a challenge. I was reminded of that this past week and just reading through some things that took place in an actual courtroom where the question being asked was not really the question that was answered. For example, a man was on the stand regarding a traffic accident. The lawyer asked him this question, did you blow your horn or anything? The man responded with a question, after the accident? The lawyer said, before the accident, to which the man replied, sure. I played for 10 years. I even went to school for it. Another case, a lawyer was questioning a person on the stand, and he asked this question, what is your date of birth? The person on the stand responded, July 15th. The lawyer then asked, what year? The person replied, every year. lawyer was questioning a husband on trial, or I'm sorry, a wife about her husband, and he asked, what was the first thing your husband said to you when he woke that morning? She responded by saying, my husband said, where am I, Kathy? The lawyer asked, and why did that upset you? To which she responded, my name is Susan. There's a longing we have for clear and concise answers at times. No spin, no equivocation, just an answer that is unambiguous. Jesus calls for such a response. We can't remain neutral about Christ. Will you follow Him or reject Him? Will you submit to Him or follow your own way? Christ does not give us the option of a maybe or middle ground. Verses 60 through 71 record a moment of decision. A moment where a response is required. And John records this for us to show that there are are two responses. Our responses will fall into one or two groups. And the first group is really, in some ways, a little bit unsettling. It's a group that he considers disciples. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard... Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is a group that appears to be followers of Jesus. They look the part. They may have been following Jesus for some time, listening to his teachings, maybe even supporting his ministry. Some of them may have jumped on the bandwagon as of late in John as they saw the miracle of the loaves and the fish. And so now they consider themselves disciples. However, the appearances are very deceiving. This is shocking, but it really shouldn't surprise us. Jesus speaks of this in other places. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says these words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father. He went on to say, on that day, many of you, looking at the great crowds, he said, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do mighty works in your names? And Jesus said, I will declare to you on that day, depart from me, for I don't know you. 
the appearance, the actions of a disciple, but not really a follower of Jesus. The New Testament gives another illustration of this in a man by the name of Demas. Demas is mentioned three times in the scripture in Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy. In Colossians and Philemon, Demas is mentioned as a co-worker, a laborer alongside Paul, a part of Paul's entourage that is helping to spread the gospel. However, things change by the time we read 2 Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy, please come to me. Demas has left me because he loved the things of this world. The appearance of being a disciple, but not actually following Christ. The other group is that which are fully committed to following Jesus. This group is described in verses 66 through 71 who remain faithful to Christ. So the question before us this morning is one where we need to take a look at our hearts and to ask, which response is ours? Which group are we in? It's a question that the scripture calls us to, to ask ourselves. In the book of 2 Peter it says, examine yourself to make your calling and election sure. So that we are not deceiving ourselves. This passage gives us some insight we can gain. Some questions we can ask as we try to just take stock of our hearts before the Lord. To say, Father, we want to respond to you as Lord and Savior. And not simply play a role. Verses 60 through 65 give us a picture of the pseudo-disciple. The response of one who may be quick to say, yes, I believe. But their lives are far from following Christ. Begins in verse 60. Many of the disciples heard what Jesus had said. And so they say to themselves, this is hard. Who can listen to it? It's not just an issue of hearing what Jesus is saying. When they ask, who can listen to it? They're saying, who can believe this? Now you could pick many statements that Jesus has just made to fill in the blank. What is the hard statement? They could be stumbling over the fact Jesus said that he is the life-giving bread. And in doing so, saying that he is superior to Moses. That would have tripped many of them up by thinking, who is this guy from Nazareth saying that he is superior to Moses? Others could have been struggling with the fact that Jesus said the only way to have eternal life is by believing in him. And using the language of eating his body and drinking his blood, they could have said, this is insane. Believing in Him? Who talks like this? Others may have been choking on the words of Jesus when Jesus said, It is the Father who gives life and brings people to faith. That would be simply too much of an assault on their pride and their control. Jesus responds to them. He knows clearly what they're thinking and He says, as if to say, you think you're offended now. Even if you were to see me ascending into to heaven, do you think that would be enough to convince you to believe? Jesus is showing the issue is not what he has done, and it's really not what he has said. The issue is their heart. He says, if you have not believed, and after I have committed the miracle of turning water into wine, I've raised the dead, I've given health to the sick, I've multiplied fishes and loaves. You wouldn't believe it even if you saw me ascend. The interesting thing is that there are things Jesus would say and we would listen to today and would applaud. 
but the human heart hasn't changed. There are statements about Jesus that are still very offensive today. We may applaud the turn the other cheek ethic. We may say that's a good way to live life, being forgiving and being gracious. But then when we hear Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We stumble over the exclusive claims of Jesus. Turn the other cheek, okay, but only Jesus? Forgive your enemies. Love those who hate you. We would stand up and applaud that. But then when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, die to self, and follow me daily. I don't know about that, Lord. Jesus gives insight into their heart in verse 63 when he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The only way to find life, the only way the Spirit gives life is through the Word, the Word of Jesus, the Word, the Scripture. He says it's the Spirit that comes. The flesh is no help at all. Now, to those hearing this for the first time, their idea of the flesh would be their ethnicity, their Jewish background. They would rely on the fact that they were descended from Abraham to give them a step up toward eternal life. Rely on the flesh. Rely on your pedigree. Rely on your background. And for those who maybe wouldn't rely on that, they would say, we're good people. We try to be moral. We try to be kind. Jesus says, your ethnicity, your background, your morality will not give you life. Today, the clash may not be against the sense of morality and the idea of believing in Jesus. I believe today the clash comes when we recognize that to follow Jesus means we must give up our belief in autonomy. What I mean is this. We live in a world that says you are the standard of truth. You are the sole standard of what is right and wrong. And that clashes headlong with Jesus. We cannot follow self and say we serve the Savior at the same time. Those two ideas are antitheses of one another. We cannot follow our own inclinations and still follow Jesus. There are believers, people who claim to be believers today that still live their life based upon a worldview that is evoked by a poem written by a man named William Ernest Henley. The words of it inspire, inspire many people to, to stand against the winds of adversity. It's called Invictus. The poem says this, out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this veil of wrath and tears clings but the harrow of shading. Yet the menace of the years finds in self I meet unafraid. Matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The problem is that is a lie. Satan wants us to believe we are the captains of our soul. 
And there are many today who would appreciate the ethic of Jesus, but they want to maintain that they are still in control of their lives to do what they want to do with no thought of Christ. Some Christian wrote an answer to Invictus, and it goes like this. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since he's the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under that rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him, and he's the abide that spite diminished all these years, keeps and shall keep me unafraid. It matters not, though straight the gate, he cleared from punishments the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate, Christ the captain of my soul. Believer, that is our testimony. Not our will, but His will. Not our thoughts, but His thoughts. The pseudo-disciples cannot accept that. They cannot acquiesce to the teachings of Jesus to say, we will follow Him. And so what happens? Verse 66. They walk away. Now contrasted to that is the response of the true disciples found in verses 66 through 71. The true disciple is characterized by three things we find in this passage. The first is perseverance. Verses 66 through 68. Perseverance. The true disciple will persevere. Many turn back from following Jesus. The disciples reveal the true nature of their heart. They leave. So in what I believe is one of the most poignant scenes in the Gospels, Jesus looks at the twelve and I believe scans their faces, looking them eye to eye, and asks this question. Do you want to go away as well? Will you leave? It's the moment of truth. What will you do? The majority's left. Will you go too? Peter steps forward as the spokesman for the group. Lord, where would we go? You have the words of life. We know and we have believed that you are the Holy One of Israel. Jesus answers, we're going to stick with you. The sayings are hard. The way of discipleship difficult. But Jesus, you have life. Where else are we going to go? See, when life becomes difficult and things don't work out how you thought they would work out, will you remain faithful? The way I look at it is this. If Jesus is Lord, he is still Lord even if life does not meet what I expected. If He is God, He is still God, even if I don't find things working out to the way I thought they should have gone. How we feel about the truth does not change the truth. And that's basically what Peter is saying. Your truth, it may be hard to hear, it may be hard to understand, but you know what? It does not change for one moment who Jesus is. One of the marks of authentic faith is perseverance. You don't quit. You don't stop. I'm always amazed in reading church history at those men and women who would have had every reason to follow, fall away by saying, Lord, it is too difficult. I think of William Carey. 
the father of modern missions, who was serving, working in England as a shoe cobbler, had India on his heart. He fashioned a homemade map of India and would keep it in front of him as he's working on shoes, praying for India. One night he goes to a meeting. And in this meeting, he stands up with his desire to take the gospel overseas when an older minister interrupted him and said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Basically, shut up and sit down, William. What do you do? Calls for a response. William Carey didn't stop. He persevered. Doesn't matter what they say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Or a Baptist missionary by the name of Adoniram Judson who felt called to go to Burma. Leaving the shores of America, he goes to Burma, labors. Doesn't win a convert, not one convert for seven years. His wife dies while he's in Burma, he buries her. He works to translate the New Testament into Burmese, only to see as he's almost finished, his house burned down and his work inside of it gone, turned to ashes. He's imprisoned, beaten. But does he stop preaching the gospel? No. Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, those who persevere to the end shall be saved. He wasn't talking about working and earning it. He was saying, how we persevere reveals the state of our heart. Will you still follow Jesus when things are tough? That's the test of faith. It's easy here. What will you do on Monday morning when things are not easy? A second characteristic is that of obedience. Look in verse 69. Peter goes on to say, we have believed and have come to know. Those are two sides of the same coin. He's saying, we've believed, we've heard the factual statements you have made. But then the word no completes that because no is a relational term. So he's saying, not only have we heard the facts and believed them in our mind, we have entered into a relationship with you that we are committed to. And that relationship is marked by obedience demonstrated in perseverance. Now to be clear, I'm not teaching salvation by works. It's clear through this chapter of John and other places that salvation is by God's grace. The Father brings salvation. But our obedience reveals our relationship to God. Now that doesn't mean we're perfect all the time. But what it does mean is that we desire to be obedient. So that even when we sin as believers, our response is one of obedience demonstrated in repentance. There are warnings throughout the scripture about the one who professes faith and then continues in sin with no repentance and no striving against it. There's no security there. But obedience is marked by a desire that seeks to do what Jesus would have us to do. Because knowing the facts does not bring about a change of desire. The first group had heard the facts about Jesus, but they didn't desire to follow him. It is the facts coupled with desire that is manifest in obedience. You see, we can know things, but it doesn't change our hearts. Several years ago, the Food and Drug Administration released a new rule for restaurants. Restaurants had to place 
the calories for every meal they served, every dish. So you, you've seen it. You go to the calories or you go to the menu. You look and you can see that the hamburger is 800 calories and the chicken is 500. And the idea is this. Okay, hamburger 800 calories, chicken 500 calories. I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to get the chicken. Do you know surveys over the last 10 years have shown that the vast majority of Americans are in favor of this? 93% say that, man, that is great. That is good. However, it's been found in 31 different studies that it has not changed the way Americans eat one bit. Big Pal, grilled chicken. You know why? We can know the fact about calories, but it's our hearts. What do we desire? What do we want? That's what he's getting at here. He is saying, we believe and we know. We've heard it and now we know it. We desire it. We believe who you are. You see, it's not just knowing the facts. It is a change of desire that is brought about by the Holy Spirit. John referred to it, or Jesus did in John 3, being born again. And believer, if you're walking with Jesus, you know the struggle that ensues when you desire to be obedient, but your nature, the sin nature, is fighting against you to get you to sin. But what the believer does, it says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I'm tempted. I'm tempted to do wrong. Help me to do right. If you're engaged in the battle to be obedient, that is a mark of a true disciple. But to claim to be a follower of Jesus and to have no inclination toward obedience. Those two don't go together. Final mark is humility. Jesus responds in a very interesting way. He doesn't commend Peter for his statement. He knows God revealed it to Peter. But instead of applauding him, he gives really what I interpret as a warning. Jesus answered them. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I think what Jesus does here is he gives a big dose of humility to the twelve disciples. Don't become arrogant. Don't think because you are remaining faithful that you are smarter than anyone else or you are better than anyone else. He says, no, be humble. It is the work of the Father. A true disciple is marked by humility, knowing it is the work of God from beginning to end. No arrogance, but thankfulness. No sense of haughtiness, but a grateful heart that says, Thank you, Lord, for saving one such as me. Because we are well aware of our sin, and we know that if our salvation was left up to us, we would be in trouble. So Jesus gives a dose of humility that says, Be thankful. Know that it is God at work. Now underneath these two responses is something that we need to keep in mind. See, there's a foundation that is is very subtle, but is found in this passage. Look to verse 61. But Jesus, now listen to the next phrase. Knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this. Look, if you will, to verse 64. Look at the parenthetical statement that John gives. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Underneath these two responses is the omniscience of Jesus. 
He knows. He is well aware of men's hearts. He knows who's going to follow and who's not. He knows. It's funny, we live in an age where cameras are ubiquitous. You can't go anywhere without being filmed, which is a scary thought. Those cameras may capture the outside, but they can never reveal one's motives and one's desires. The Holy Spirit is present. The Holy Spirit knows. That should cause us to stop. Because the reality is we can fool people. We can. We can be around church long enough to learn the language, to learn the actions, to know when to say bless your heart or when to say I'll pray for them. We can play a role. But the Lord knows our hearts. This passage has given us to put us in the place of the twelve. Will we go away also? One or two responses. How will you respond? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now. Nathan and I are going to be standing in the front. If the Spirit is speaking to you, convicting you in some way, and you feel like you just need someone to pray with you, he and I are here. If you have questions this morning, wondering, I'm, I'm not sure. And if you want to come forward this morning, we will set up a time to follow up with you this week to talk about being a follower of Jesus. You may be felt you may be led this morning to just come and kneel at the kneeling bench just to pray. These kneeling benches are open. They are made for that purpose. We're not going to prolong the invitation, so if the spirit is speaking, be quick to obey. Father, I thank you that you are gracious, especially when I realize that you know our hearts. We can't hide from you. We are open books. And Father, we are very prone to self-deception. So Lord, I pray for your spirit, the spirit of truth, to speak to our hearts. Let us be found among those who persevere and are obedient and humbly seek you. To your glory, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.